Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. I warn you, my ancient Egyptian isn't nearly as good as my ancient Hebrew. Both of those might come in handy on this particular opera. Grant, what's today's opera? Today, we are going to be talking about Philip Glass's Akhenaten. Akhenaten? That is ancient Egyptian, isn't it? But not such an ancient opera. No, it's in fact a very, very modern opera. This might be our oldest subject for an opera and our most recent opera. That might be right, actually. I haven't done the actual research, but it certainly is our most modern opera to date in terms of its composition. This opera had its premiere in 1983. and Which is crazy recent. <laughs> yes, 1983 in opera land is very recent. And if you are not familiar with Philip Glass, you got a little bit of a taste of Philip Glass in the introductory music there. But you'll find he's... You're not going to confuse him with Puccini or with Verdi or Massinet or even Handel for that matter. He has a, a distinctive style, all his own, very modern. My my experience of it is that honestly it sounds, even even more than, than Wagner does, it sounds a lot like movie music. Interesting. Well, one of the things that Philip Glass said when he wrote his first big successful opera, which was Einstein on the Beach, was that he had moved from writing music for the theater to writing music theater, which almost sounds Wagnerian. But but the yes. idea that he, he did do some music for theater, for I think for film. Well, at any rate, he had a, a hugely popular art film in 1982, just a couple of years before this, called Koyaanisqatsi. And depending on our listeners' vintage, you might remember that film. It made a huge splash in terms of just really mesmerizing people. The word Koyaanisqatsi comes from Native American Hopi language, meaning life out of balance. And it was feature-length film, and it had music that comes off as initially repetitive, but as you listen to it, you hear slight changes, but it also came with interesting images that matched it. But this particular opera that we're listening to today, Akhenaten, is going to be a little bit of a blend of some of that impressionistic feeling with the music and with the images, but it also is going to to tell a story in a somewhat conventional way. There are three acts to this opera. Each act has scenes. It pretty much goes chronologically in terms of the character's life, but it's not... Again, you're not going to mistake it for one of those older operas. It's its its own sort of opera. Yeah, I mean, the plot is... Glass is a minimalist composer in almost every sense of the term. And I think in this case, for reasons that that very clearly tie in with the, the subject matter. Yeah, I, I'm, I was struck by the degree to which the plot seems to be disconnected. It's got this kind of slice of life sort of... It honestly feels like those those Oscar movies, right? Where you get the like part of the story and then it like goes silent for a while and then another part of the story and it goes silent for a while. I, I think that's very intentional on his part. I think Glass was very much inspired to write this opera because Akhenaten is such an interesting individual, a king, a man of power, important in Egyptian history, and yet he's not really well known, not a tremendous amount of detail do we have about his life. This piece begins with the narrator in the 
libretto were known as the scribe, the narrator reciting an ancient Egyptian text that describes the death of a pharaoh and the life that awaits them in the hereafter. his wings like a zeret bird. He goes to the sky. He goes to the sky. On the wind. On the wind.
listening to Philip Glass's Achnaten. Philip Glass is the librettist here, but Grant, it's not a libretto that he devises all out of his own imagination, is it? In fact, almost none of it. Uh, Part of what's fascinating about this opera is that it is in large chunks in the ancient languages and in fact using the words of the ancient documents that cover this time period. So we just heard the scribe, the narrator, speaking about the death of the pharaoh. It's also a little bit of a hint about what might happen with this other pharaoh. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Death in an opera? (laughs) Death in an opera? Yeah, no, it's uh, a spoiler alert. This is one where the body count's a little high. Oh. Yeah. But not yet, not yet. But not yet, right right, right now the body count is at one. Right, the funeral Uh, of the prior pharaoh. The funeral of the prior pharaoh. And, oh, and the text the scribe is actually saying is from the pyramid texts. It's from actual ancient Egyptian documents. And we'll see this again and again and again. Are, are the pyramid texts something that was printed on the or inscribed on the pyramids? Yeah, they're hieroglyphics from the time of the Old Kingdom, which is to say thousands of years before this play is set. The history of Egypt is really long. It is really long. You know, we keep referring to how long it is. R- roughly what century are we, are we set in here? So we're, we're set in 14th century or so before the Common Era, which is BCE. Uh, BC, yes. for, for those of you uh, with more old-fashioned style, which is, okay. which is BC for some of you. We're talking about a time period that is 100 to 100 years before the ancient Near East collapse, which was this event that formed the basis of most stories people know about the ancient world. Wait, the ancient Near East collapse? Yeah, so there was this moment, and for reasons that are still hotly debated, what happened is all the big empires in the world just kind of fell apart. All the ones in the ancient Near East, that is. It was this event during the transition of the Bronze to Iron Age where empires just started falling like dominoes. The Hittites and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the various city-states along the Levant kind of all collapsed at the same time. There's a lot of debate about exactly why this happened, but the great stories that we know from ancient times, like the story of the Trojan War, or the early history of the Hebrews, as related in the Bible, take place in this moment, about 150 years before this. And that's the moment when history starts to take on its recognizable shape. So we are in the history that's just a little before history as we know it. History before history. Yes. Certainly history before history. There's a, there's no discipline of history that exists in it yet. Okay. But the, we do have written language, right? Of course we do, because we're reading from the pyramid texts. Yes. And the written language was largely done by merchants and priests. Because those were the people who needed to write stuff down. Yeah. And in the Egyptian context, uh, generals as well. And so the texts that we'll be, texts we'll be hearing uh, in this opera... Yes. Are, are include texts from the priests and texts from the soldiers who governed the pharaoh's territories and in one case a text that Akhenaten himself is reported to have written okay but that's later on in the opera I far believe. later on all right so we've just heard the scribe singing in english setting the scene for us and then the part we couldn't understand that's from the funeral of 
the prior pharaoh. I yes. I was. I said that like a question, like I expected you to say something. Sorry. <laughs> this opera alternates between the spoken parts in English or French or German, depending on where it's being performed. Uh, oh, right. That's an interesting point. It, it Because there is an assumption, even though Philip Glass is American and native English speaker, it's not that English is must be used. It's the, the language of the location where it's being performed. Right. There's, mm-hmm. there's an intentional effort to have parts of this that are in the common tongue, in the vernacular of wherever it's being performed, and parts of this that are left very strange, very mysterious. Mm. Oh, and that, that's the ancient language. Yes. The original language of the various texts. And here's, I suppose, where we throw in the caveat that Philip Glass doesn't know, and neither do we, and neither does anybody else, how any of this stuff was pronounced. Ancient Egyptian does not have vowels. And <laughs> right. And we're all guessing. And those of you doing your research may notice that the way that Glass spells Akhenaten is not, in fact, the most common way that the name is spelled, but that's just the artifact of how ancient and ultimately strange these languages are to us. Yes, I had noticed that, when because when you look up Akhenaten spelled the way the opera is, immediately the opera pops up, and I thought, oh, I thought I'd find something about the ancient pharaoh, but you have to add in an extra E for that. At any rate, we have, we have just well-buried... Amenhotep III. And so now all hail Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV. Who's he? He's the new king. Pharaoh? Same thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Pharaoh is actually, here's your, your fun Egyptian fact of the day. Pharaoh <laughs> actually is, I want more than one with this opera. <laughs> is, is properly the name of the palace. It means kind of more or less like big house or palace. Oh, like when we refer to the White House. Exactly, exactly. It's when like we refer to huh. Number Ten Downing Street or the White House, or yeah, same same. Oh, concept. so the Pharaoh is the seat of power. Okay. Yeah, but it also by this time very much also means the the human being who is that role. But there is this sense in which the Pharaoh isn't a human being. They ah, tell us more about that. The Pharaohs are god kings. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of societies have had god kings and. People take the god part and king part more or less seriously, depending on where you are. But in Egypt, it was taken tremendously seriously. A huge portion of the nation's economic, religious, and cultural life was centered around the cult of the pharaohs, to an extent that it was unrecognizable even to, say, the Roman cult, which was similarly very concerned with the worship of the emperor. And isn't it true that you can include worship of the, the emperor, the king? If It's a much easier thing to do if you're a polytheistic society because he's part of the pantheon. He's the one who's on earth. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's also true that in the Egyptian context, Egyptians, Egypt, Egypt is just an interesting place. It's a place of death and rebirth, right? The Nile floods every year, or used to, as before the dam was built a few decades ago. But the Nile, for thousands of years, would flood every year and leave fertile soil, and then it would recede. And when the Nile was flooded, there was not a lot you could do, and when the Nile wasn't flooded, you could harvest lots of crops, and so they ended up doing these huge temples and public works projects and sending people around on armies, because they had this entire season of the year where nobody could do anything and they had plenty of food to feed everybody. Mm. And so 
Egypt spent a lot more time than a lot of other places being unified, partly because it's just, it's easier to unify a place if it's just all one big long river and nothing on either side of it. And they also needed to work together. Yes, exactly. There is, there's a strong need for collective effort to farm in the kind of way that we're talking about. And, and indeed, a need to be able to store food in order to farm the way we're talking about, uh, which also requires a certain amount of centralization. So yeah, the pharaohs from very, very, very long ago had enormous power over huge regions, far, far greater than most of the Mesopotamian monarchs uh, exercised. Most of them were localized to a city, occasionally dominating other cities, but nothing compared to the Egyptian pharaohs who were able to rule the entire land of Egypt and oftentimes much of the surrounding land. Yeah. Well, I think it might be fun now to hear, to stop our chat and hear a little bit of the coronation of Akhenaten. We've got, some of this is sung in Egyptian and some of it is courtesy of the scribe, so we can understand the part that he's saying. Yes, and so let's take a look at the double coronation of Akhenaten. Wait, why is it a double coronation? Because there are two crowns in Egypt, the crown of Upper Egypt and the crown of Lower Egypt. That's right, and they put them together. And mm-hmm. is Akhenaten the first to be the double recipient of these two crowns? Nah, they've been doing that forever. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, here's the coronation of Amenhotep IV.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. This is Akhenaten by composer Philip Glass, and it is a modern opera, maybe a little unfamiliar to your ears, but I hope you're enjoying it. The, the music here is so rich and atmospheric that I don't know about you, Grant, but I find it really transporting. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because it's a play and it's a piece of music and to some extent it's poetry, but it's also, as much as anything else, it is a presentation of ancient texts and ancient sources. And, yes. and that is fascinating to me. And I do love the degree to which he has allowed these things to be foreignized. He has allowed them to not be made simply... This is not the Mikado, right? Where where we've we've taken a strange place and made it our place. This is not Pirates of Penzance, where a strange place has been made a familiar place. Right. This is it's not Turandot, right? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a strange yes. place that remains. This is not the message. This is a, a strange place that remains strange, and there's something very important about that, I think, because the story of Akhenaten, which we should probably give in summary at about this point. The Egyptian gods had existed in more or less their form for that literally thousands of years. They had shifted. Different ones had become more or less powerful. Different ones had acquired one or another attribute. And Because we were talking about this as a polytheistic society. Very, very much so. And there's all these invocations of the gods in, in that previous song. And then we have this man who takes the name Akhenaten changes his name to... Yeah, why, do, why does he change it from Amenhotep IV, which recognizes his father and the entire lineage? Why does he change it to Akhenaten? Well, he's, uh, he's a rebel. He changes things. That's part of his, his whole deal. He, uh, <laughs> and, he, and he specifically changes the Theophoric part of his name. Theophoric names are names that have a element of them that celebrates a particular god. Theophoric, meaning Theo-god? And, uh, and, then and then from pharaoh, or to, to bear or carry, cognate with our word fairy. It's a, oh. it's a name that carries a god in it, that honors a god. We've got quite a few of these still in our society. We're less into this than the ancient Egyptians were. Essentially, every ancient Egyptian name had a... Oh, wait, wait, like the name Christian? Uh, yes. Uh, Christian includes the name of a deity. Uh, or, oh, wait, but what about Theodore? Right. Theodore, which means gift of god. Dorothy mm -hmm. means the same thing, just with the order swapped. That's good. Any biblical name that ends with L, Daniel, Gabriel, Samuel. What do those mean? L is an ancient Hebrew name for God. Ah. Anything that ends with Yah or Ja, that's an ancient Hebrew name, is also yes. using a, an God. ancient Hebrew word for God. Anyway, there's okay. there's lots of these. Akhenaten. Which, which God is he honoring? So originally he's honoring. His, his, his given name is... Amenhotep. And so that's honoring Amun, uh, who is at this point the chief deity in the Egyptian pantheon. Okay. And then Akhenaten changes his name to honor Aten. And Aten just and means... And turn his back on Amun? Exactly. Uh-oh. Yes. Gradually at first, but we'll see it escalate in just a moment here. So Aten is sort of a god. Aten is a god who is, I mean, the word means disc. It refers to the sun disc. Oh. And so even though there had been this long tradition of all these different gods, when Akhenaten began to worship Aten, everything changed. Because it matters who 
the guy in charge worships. I mean, that's that's a long story in various civilizations. And it's especially true in a society with the god king, because if the king is the conduit to the gods, yes, it matters very much what kind of a god the king is worshipping. And the king is going to want compliance, obedience from his subjects, isn't he? Yes, uh, it's there's an interesting balance where kings at the same time want to centralize aspects of worship to maintain their own control over them, but at the same time centralizing worship tends to turn the people against you because you're depriving them of their deities. It also has this effect priests and temple workers of various kinds, scribes and whatnot, were the oil in the machine. They were the literate people. They were the people who butchered animals. They were the people who did various technical tasks that made it possible for society to function. And it was very important to keep all of these people in their different ways on your side. Okay, there's just a few thoughts to think about. But can we get to our next piece of music, which I must tell you, I think is one of my absolute favorite pieces in this entire opera. And why is that? The, the, The sound is lush and gorgeous as the voices come together. And I think it's also important to explain here about the characters we're going to hear sing. It's going to be Akhenaten himself, as well as his wife and his mother. His wife is Nefertiti, and Queen Tai is his mother. And Akhenaten is voiced by a countertenor. And who's Nefertiti voiced by? So Nefertiti is an alto, and uh, the mother, Queen Tai, she's a soprano. But... These voices will, will, you'll hear them layering on one and then the other, and I think it's absolutely exquisite. And I have to tell you one other little bit about this threesome, the mother, the wife, the king. It's so funny because I've seen this and read this in a few places about Glass's early interest in this topic for an opera, that there was a, a scholar, a writer, who posited that the relationship with Akhenaten, his wife, and his mother was a precursor to the story that the Greeks then form into the Oedipus story. But every time it's talked about, they say, oh, it's intriguing, but it's probably not true. So here I go perpetuating that untruth because it's so intriguing. Yes, no, I mean, there was... It was certainly some interesting family relationships. and At some point, we'll get into the, the mystery story part of all this. But we know that there was a fair bit of incest going on in the 18th dynasty. And we know that it caused a fair bit of genetic problems that probably ultimately resulted in the fall of the dynasty. But yeah, there were certainly some odd choices of partners in that particular time. Okay, well, let's leave it right there. And let's go ahead and listen to this section called The Window of Appearances where we have these three main characters singing.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. This is Philip Glass's Achnaten. Well, Grant, what do you think of that piece? It's totally beautiful. And I think mm-hmm. what's part of what's interesting about it is how similar Akhenaten's and Nefertiti's voices are. Yes. And there is this interesting thing with both Akhenaten and Nefertiti that they were interesting from the point of view of gender construction. Akhenaten's reign saw this new style of artwork, and there's all this Mm -hmm. debate about whether it was hyper-realistic or whether it was exaggerated in certain ways, but Akhenaten looks quite feminine in a lot of these. And Nefertiti, as a lot of powerful women in Egypt did, was sometimes depicted with various male attributes. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I actually watched a bit of the, some of the film taken of the premiere of this opera, and uh, which, by the way, was in Stuttgart, Germany. The Stuttgart had commissioned this opera from Philip Glass, and it premiered in Stuttgart, uh, closely followed by a premiere in America, in Houston. But the pictures of the character Akhenaten, they specifically give him some feminine as well as masculine characteristics. So it's, it was kind of an interesting take on all of it. I don't know that all designers or directors would make, the, make all of those choices. But I did hear a, a comment from Philip Glass himself saying he chose to make Akhenaten a countertenor to make him different from all the other men around him. Yes. So he's not like anyone else. Yes. He is He is set apart in so many ways. Yes. It just, on some of he just doesn't seem like a creature of his time. <laughs> and I think history bears that out. Yeah, he just, like, he comes across as, like, a time traveler who tried to do a thing and it didn't quite work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a comment I, could, I just want to insert here about the orchestra I wasn't able to pick it up again. I'm not well enough trained to do this, but I had read about this. And then when I read in the little program notes about the various instruments in the orchestra, the story goes that at the time the premiere was to happen, even though Stuttgart had commissioned this opera, their regular opera house was undergoing renovations. So they had to use a nearby theater, which had a much smaller orchestra pit. And Glass and Dennis Russell Davies, who was the premiere's conductor, went over and walked this and they were like well that's that's all we just have to get rid of the violins and so there are no violins <laughs> it's true <laughs> they couldn't fit them there there are no violins in the orchestra for this particular opera which is makes it well, that makes it pretty unusual i think and I, there are violas there are cellos there are double basses those are our strings though no violins and I, I think that's like musically it feels to me like that increases the strangeness of how it sounds that it Perhaps. there's this opera sound we associate with an orchestra sounds like, which is <laughs> violins more than anything else. Yeah, the soaring sweetness of the violins. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So anyway, that was just a little a little something I picked up there. All right. So we've had the window of appearances, and that is our concluding piece for the first act. Yes. So Akhenaten has risen to the throne. He has sung about his aspirations for the kingdom and everything is going to go just swimmingly it'll be great i think you dropped enough hints that we know you're lying about that (laughs) (laughs) well act two tells us that it's years five to fifteen of akhenaten's reign represented in act two so we get to do a time skip forward just like in the crown just like in the crown (laughs) 
<laughs> and the first scene brings us to the temple. What's going to happen in the temple? I'm sure he's coming just to pay his respects in the typical pious way. Now you told us that he <laughs> didn't like the way things were going. Interesting, it's year five here. but he, So he doesn't like the status quo. What does he do? So what he does is he comes and starts wrecking things. He forbids the, the priests from continuing to perform their rituals to Amun. He forbids the use of, for lack of a better term, idols and images. He criticizes their praying to these false animal gods. And it's just sort of an unusual scene. The priests just can't quite understand what's happening. From our point of view, as people with knowledge of monotheism, this is a scene we can imagine pretty easily. We, we have some sense of what this idea of insisting on one god is mm. but it would have been so strange in the time period as to be almost incomprehensible right because why can't we like sure you're god whatever just join the party and the song is without words and the reason it's without words is because there are no texts about this there is a hole in the history here. Well, and speaking of hole, part of what happens at the end of this scene with the temple and the destruction of the temple is that the roof is torn off. And when the roof is torn off, what pours in? The rays of light from the sun, the sun god, Aten. And that's Aten, right, exactly. That's Aten. That is Akhenaten's god. And by the way, this is based on an archaeological find. One of the known temples of Aten had no roof for precisely this reason. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting to me how much they are trying within this opera to honor history. Yes. I mean, when we did when we did Roberto Devereux, he ends Donizetti ends Roberto Devereux with Queen Elizabeth abdicating the throne. There's plenty of examples in opera of composers and librettists just doing whatever they want to with history. So it is interesting in contrast to see deep respect for not just using historic texts to form the libretto, but also trying to be fair and only present what we have some reason to know, as opposed to filling in the gaps, even plausibly, but just not, not doing that at all. Yes. It, amusingly, like the closest they get to filling in the gaps is this scene here, where we see the destruction of the temples, which we know of historically only in very indirect, often kind of passive-aggressive texts from people mm. after him who referred to him as being a, a villain. Right. Right. For tearing down the existing house of worship. Yes. Well, let's hear a little bit of this destruction of the temple. Yes. And this, then we'll come back to our, our loving couple. This wordless argument between the priests and Akhenaten. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. That was the temple and the destruction thereof in Philip Glass's Akhnaten. So, Grant, I have a question for you. Go for it. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Very specific so... questions within my narrow areas of subject matter. I, I think you're going to like this one. Okay, I cool. Think you're going to like this one. As I as I put this together in my head, this is taking place around the time of the Hebrew Exodus. Yep. And this guy's a monotheist. Ish. 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 So if he's a monotheist, ish, and the, so can you connect those dots for me? Yeah, I should have said ish on the Hebrew Exodus thing too. There is a lot of debate among scholars about exactly what parts of the Exodus story should be regarded as historical, what parts are mythic, what parts are explanatory, what parts are symbolic. There is very little in the historical record about the ancient Hebrews. Outside mm -hmm. of the biblical sources, we get a handful of sources that talk about Hebrews running around destroying things, being destroyed by people who are running around, and not a whole lot else. It's also true that the events here are 100, 150 years previous to the time that we would be talking about. It's hard to draw a direct connection. That hasn't stopped a lot of people. <laughs> it's, oh, really? It's extremely tempting to draw a direct connection. Sigmund Freud famously wrote a book uh, claiming that Moses was a priest of Aten who Are you wanted kidding? to keep the whole thing Freud. going. I had no idea. And his argument for this hinged on the etymology of Moses' name. Oh. As people began to learn about ancient Egyptian and learn the etymology, they discovered that Moses' name, uh, which is given a Hebrew etymology in Exodus, is actually not a Hebrew name at all. In fact, it seems strange when you read the book of Exodus that he would be given a Hebrew name, given that it's an Egyptian princess who names him. Right. A lot of people want to make the connection. It's very hard to do so historically, partly because we just know so little about the figures that are involved here. One thing, however, yes. that we do very much know yes. is that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were for lack of a better term, in love with each other. Yes, we actually do get a love song, such as it is, in this opera. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's interesting because it's this religious song that's repurposed as a love song, but we all know from at least Whoopi Goldberg that that can work just fine. <laughs> so enjoy the love being expressed between husband and wife, between king and his queen.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs on 89.1 KHOL, Sundays, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud you can find a treasure trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. Stay tuned. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Opera for Everyone is brought to you by Purple Sheets. Do you ever want a purple sheet? (laughs) Not me. Purple seems like an odd color for sheets. But if you've ever felt like being a Phoenician king, why not wrap yourself in purple sheets and stride up and down the room like you're wearing a toga? Is it because togas are supposed to be made out of semicircular cloth and who keeps semicircular cloth around? Who knows, but you probably spent time in a frat house and know how to tie a toga normally. I didn't know togas were made out of semicircular sheets. Learn something every day. That's true. Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Achnaten by Philip Glass. And at this point, I'd like to let you know who we're listening to. This was actually the recording from the premiere in 1984. It's the Stuttgart State Opera Orchestra and Chorus. The conductor is Dennis Russell Davies, Philip Glass composer and librettist here from Ancient Sources. And for our principal characters, Achnaten is played by the countertenor Paul Eswood. Alto Milagro Vargas plays Queen Nefertiti, and Queen Ty, the mother, is played by the soprano Melinda Lieberman. So, Grant, thanks for helping us out with all of this. We have more of the story to tell. That's good. I'm here for stories and ancient texts. <laughs> well, I understand there's there's a city that's going to be built. Yeah, so as part of Akhenaten's reorganization of everything... He builds a large city, Akhetaten, which he names in honor of his god. City of the Horizon of the Aten. And he makes a big deal about the fact that he didn't pick this city because anyone told him to. He picked it because of the will of Aten. That no one may convince him to build his city anyplace else. And this is a place that belongs to no one. But instead it is the one god who told him where to build his city and what to build there. Yes, as I look at the libretto, that seems to be a lot of what the narrator tells us. Yeah, this is one of those parts where the things that we know happened, like the religious reformation and the construction of this city, were both things that are essential to discuss Akhenaten's reign, but also events that don't have a long paper trail. And so Glass has created (laughs) a way- a papyrus trail? Or a papyrus trail or a Stella trail. Although in this case, what language there is from the from the scribe, the narrator, is actually the boundary markers of the city. Oh, interesting. So they don't have the people singing this. They've just they're we're narrating it and we're doing this this non-vocal kind of song to to celebrate and eventually lead into our dance. And his Majesty said unto them, Ye behold the city of the horizon of the Aten which the Aten has desired me to make for him as a monument in the great name of my majesty forever. 
for it was the Aten, my father, that brought me to this city of the horizon. There was not a noble who directed me to it. There was not any man in the whole land who led me to it, saying, It is fitting for his majesty that he make a city of the horizon of Aten in this place. Nay, but it was the Aten, my father, that directed me to make it for him. Behold, the Pharaoh found that this site belonged not to a god nor to a goddess. It belonged not to a prince nor to a princess. There was no right for any man to act as owner of it. I will make the city of the horizon of Aten for the Aten, my father, in this place. I will not make the city south of it, north of it, west of it, or east of it. I will not pass beyond the southern boundary stone southward, neither will I pass beyond the northern boundary stone northward to make for him a city of the horizon there. Neither will I make for him a city on the western side. Nay, but I will make the city of the horizon for the Aten, my father, upon the east side the place for which he did enclose for his own self with cliffs and made a plain in the midst of it that I might sacrifice to him thereon. This is it. Neither shall the queen say unto me, Behold, there is a goodly place for the city of the horizon in another place, and I hearken unto her. Neither shall any noble nor any man in the whole land say unto me, Behold, there is a goodly place for the city of the horizon in another place, and I hearken unto them. Whether it be downstream, or southward, or westward, or eastward, I will not say, I will abandon this city of the horizon.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Achnaten by Philip Glass. And that was just celebration of this brand new city that Achnaten has created to honor his god. And the city sounds a lot like his name. Achtaten? Did I say that correctly, Grant? Who knows? Who knows? That's oh right. That is one of our <laughs> <laughs> That's one of our things. Uh we don't know how so we'll say it Achtaten because that's, that's how the, it, that's the delightful thing, is that you can't get this stuff wrong. Well, I mean you can, but we're uh, unlike you, me in Italian, okay, that's fine. very hard to know. <laughs> until and unless I finally get that ride in the time machine that I've been asking for for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh there's there's just no good way to know. All right, so we've had celebration here in this brand new constructed city. And while we're just feeling happy, I'm going to fill in just a little bit more context for the creation of this opera. We mentioned before that Glass was trying to be very respectful of history and pulling this all together and not just make stuff up, but really go to the sources, including, by the way, trips to Egypt itself to visit museums, to see sites in person and and get a real feel and sense for that. So that's part of what I think he's trying to convey with his music. Do we think we're going to get to run into a tour guide before we're done with all this? (laughs) It it might happen. (laughs) It might. In fact, some of the text comes from Fodor's. What's Fodor's? Oh. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, my knowledge of history is great once you're 1 AD and back. (laughs) And the closer you get to the present day, the less I know about anything. Well, for those of you who don't know what Fodor's is, it was in the time when you didn't have a smartphone in your pocket. You would buy a tour book before you went somewhere to be able to orient yourself and learn something about the places you were visiting. And Fodor's was one of the main publishers of such travel books. Huh. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that I spoke briefly about it before, but this opera fits into what Philip Glass called his portrait trilogy. And it was three operas that he conceived of this as a trilogy, not right from the start, but but he himself did name it that. Because his very first opera was Einstein on the Beach, 1976, was when it premiered. Set in the modern era. Yeah, well, I see, but Einstein on the Beach is not what it 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 doesn't even follow as much of an expected operatic format as something like Akhenaten does, which seems new and different and unusual to us now. But Einstein on the Beach was much more of just a a flow of consciousness. It it ran for a long time, and people were expected to just get up and go in and out of the auditorium as they needed to do. And then there was the opera Satyagraha, which was premiered in 1980. And that was commissioned by the Rotterdam Opera in the Netherlands. And it was sort of an idealization of Gandhi. And there are other historical figures who appear, but it's really focusing on Gandhi. And For so this. Worth, that S word is a Sanskrit word that is still used correct, and there is a correct pronunciation for it and I'm not going to even attempt to say it well I did I did hear an interview with Philip Glass and he called it Satyagraha so that's going to be good enough for me fair enough so we had Einstein then we had Gandhi and Satyagraha and then Akhenaten himself in Akhenaten and interestingly all of these operas by this American composer Philip Glass premiere in Europe, 
Avignon for Einstein on the beach, Rotterdam for Satyagraha, and Stuttgart for Akhenaten. All right, back to our story. We have celebrated the creation of this new city, and then we're going to have a, a scene where we get to know a little bit more about Akhenaten and what's what's actually in his heart. So, I love all this ancient language stuff, but I hear this next song isn't in any ancient language. No, this is very special. What language is it in? Whatever language the audience attending the production speaks. Isn't that great? Like, you don't get a lot of that in opera, where the language changes depending on where you're performing it. Well, you know, truth be told, in earlier times, it wasn't that unusual for people to translate operas into the the local languages. But these days, we prefer to keep it in the language of the original composition. But this is different. They had much worse subtitle machines back then. Right. (laughs) Right. So tell us about this hymn that we're about to hear from Akhenaten. and, And tell us why you think perhaps Glass stipulated that this should be in the local language. So this is this is Akhenaten praying to his god. It is a personal encounter. It is a one-on-one encounter, and it's in his own mind. One-on-one so, meaning him and his god. Oh. And this is not this is not about public show. This is not about performance. This is about him trying to relate to and glorify and understand the divine. And so it's presented as his thoughts accessible and that's the brilliance of it is we've done all these these uh the translation term is foreignizing we've done all this foreignizing where we have made this ancient egyptian world strange and now he sings something that sounds very familiar Mm. because akhenaten maybe question mark wrote this song originally or somebody wrote it for him but possibly he wrote it himself and it sounds a lot like religious poetry used to this very day. And so by placing you in this man who is in some way outside of time's mind and presenting his thoughts in your language, Glass is able to convey the idea that this is a person who isn't of his time. There is something more universal in some strange way. Whether people try to project that on it or whether it's an authentic historical reality is almost irrelevant because Akhenaten becomes a symbol. It's almost impossible to read him not as a symbol. Oh. I should also say that this song isn't entirely in English. Part of it's in Hebrew. <laughs> oh, interesting. So Akhenaten sings his bit in English, and then we get the voices of the chorus distantly singing Psalm 104 in Hebrew. Remind us about Psalm 104, please. <laughs> Psalm, Psalm 104 is from the Old Testament, uh, originally written in Hebrew, and in fact presented here in Hebrew. And it's a, a psalm that celebrates God's provision for the whole universe. Mm. It sounds a lot like Akhenaten's hymn, to the point that, that literary scholars sometimes look at the, the two and think that there must be some kind of relationship between them. So the, the hymn that Akhenaten sings there's actual textual evidence that that's from ancient Egypt, from Akhenaten? Correct. That's fascinating. That you yeah. see the relationship between that and one of the Psalms. Yes. It's, al- it's always interesting when you discover the way that these ancient stories talk to each other and are in conversation with each other, and the way these ancient poems talk to each other and are in conversation with each other. You understand a lot more about 
Job if you know about the Egyptian and Babylonian texts that it's in dialogue with. You understand more about the Psalms if you know that they are modeled in certain ways on Egyptian poetic forms. You know more about I didn't the flood know that. story. <laughs> the Psalms are modeled on ancient Egyptian poetry? Uh, some of them. The Psalms are written over a vast period of time by many different authors. Right. And some of them are, are quite late and use quite distinct language, and some of them are quite early and use their own vocabulary. But yeah, there are absolutely psalms that share a lot in common. Um, and, and by the way, sections of uh, poetry and proverbs and other places that share a lot in common with ancient Egyptian traditions. The religious life of the ancient Hebrews was very connected in certain ways with the religious life of the ancient Egyptians, and they were aware of this. This is... It's part of the core of the Exodus story. I was going to say, and not just because of the Moses experience. Yeah, there's a deep cultural tie there, Uh, even if it's a cultural tie that was sometimes forged in animosity. Fascinating. Well, shall we hear Akhenaten's hymn? And then a psalm in Hebrew. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Akhenaten by Philip Glass. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant. I am so grateful to you, Grant, for your expertise on things ancient. Thank well, you. It's a wonderful field to become a specialist in because no one really knows anything. And so you just <laughs> you need to get saying really, that. you need to get really practiced <laughs> in just being able to say, well, no one really knows, but certain people think this thing and certain uh, people think this thing. And then you all like collectively shrug, shrug your shoulders and go out for drinks. I'm going to call that false modesty. All right. We're ready for act three. Act three of Akhenaten gets us to year 17, which is the final year of Akhenaten's reign. Why are we counting that way? Why is this year 17? The whole thing with ancient Egypt is this this idea of cycles and cycles and cycles and cycles. And so they're always going to count everything from the latest king and they're always going to place the kings within their broader lineage and within that they're going to place them into these larger groups between what we nowadays would refer to as the old kingdom middle kingdom and new kingdom and fascinatingly as far back in time as we are in this story we are in the new kingdom already everything's relative it's true all right so in the beginning of this act three we have a domestic scene we have the family is what this first scene is called and that's Akhenaten, Nefertiti and their six daughters and I understand that this is meant to be a, a domestic scene, but we're also to understand that it's a bit of an insular scene. Yeah, there's a deep contrast between the way that Akhenaten's family is experiencing things and living their lives and the way that his country is experiencing things and living their lives. Well, because Akhenaten has just made his own dream a reality. He's founded a city that's brand new, dedicated to his god. He's destroyed the old ways of worship that he thinks are improper. And he's able to pray to his god in the way that he sees fit. But it's not so easy for everybody else. Yeah, and, and this this is a revolution that touched all areas of life. We haven't even really gone about this, but the art from this time period is radically different from any other ancient Egyptian art, almost to the point of being unrecognizable. It's oh, interesting for a piece of art to depict that, huh? Yeah, it's it, it shows how wholesale the intellectual revolution he was trying to lead was, that it touched everything, including the way that all pictorial art of the gods, of the kings, and everything else worked. So this scene of domestic bliss does not remain blissful the whole time. No, they're able to hide in the palace and ignore the goings-on because it's good to be king. But <laughs> you can't ignore yes. forever. And so there is this these letters that are that are sent. We have records of them. These are ancient letters from his time? Ancient letters from his time sent to him by his vassal kings, the kings who he ruled over in places like the the Levant and people including the king of the city of Jerusalem which was well this is well before it was occupied by the Hebrews and the king of Jerusalem was writing him wrote him I think something like 60 letters begging for help begging for soldiers to come to his rescue and all of these subject kings kept saying Akhenaten we're under attack we need your help or your empire is going to fall and it's not entirely clear why but he didn't send them help He's disengaged, isn't he? He's in his world with his family and his prayers, but he's not necessarily being an active political leader. 
that's certainly one reading. That's certainly the the reading you're largely left with from the, the Philip Glass story. I'll say for whatever it's worth, my hunch is that he was very involved, that you would have had to be an extraordinarily canny political figure to achieve the kind of things he achieved. And my guess is that the reason he wasn't able to send his troops abroad is because of the unrest provoked by his changes at home. Fascinating. So we have these all these plaintive letters like, King, we need help, we need help. But he, he just didn't have the wherewithal to spare those troops. Yeah, I mean that's 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 one reading of the of the history. Again, Philip Glass has this emphasis on his idea of Akhenaten's personal piety and family life. By the way, both of which, on some level, are further things that make him more familiar to us. He had a religious life that is recognizable to us as the kind of religious life that very devout monotheists have, and he had a family life which is recognizable to us as the kind of love that people who are really in love have. I, I saw in one of the interviews, Philip Glass was saying that in some sense, Nefertiti and Akhenaten are the first truly romantic couple we know about in history. Right. Which I thought was a, a remarkable statement. It is remarkable. And, you know, when I was referring to that whole concept of the portrait trilogy before, he makes Einstein, this man of science is how he describes it. Einstein is the man of science. And then with Gandhi, that's the man of politics. And with Akhenaten, that's the man of religion. So that really is the focus that Glass is bringing to this depiction of Akhenaten. Which is a fascinating thing, because ultimately Gandhi was a religious figure and Akhenaten was a political figure. But right. that's perhaps another story for another day. <laughs> well, you know, everybody's multi-layered. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to a little bit of this depiction of the family and the plaintive letters that Akhenaten receives.
written repeatedly for troops, but they were not given, and the king did not listen to the word of his servant. And I sent my messenger to the palace, but he returned empty-handed. He brought no troops. And when the people of my house saw this, they ridiculed me like the governors, my brethren, and despised me. The king's whole land, which has begun hostilities with me, will be lost. Behold the territory of Seir, as far as Carmel. Its princes are wholly lost, and hostilities prevail against me. As long as ships were upon the sea, the strong arm of the king occupied Naharin and Kash. But now the Ampiru are occupying the king's cities. There remains not one prince to my lord the king. Everyone is ruined. Let the king take care of his land, and let him send troops. For if no troops come in this year, the whole territory of my lord the king will perish. If there are no troops in this year, let the king send his officer to fetch me and his brothers, that we may die with our lord the king. Verily, thy father did not march forth nor inspect the lands of the vassal princes. And when thou ascended the throne of thy father's house, Abdeshirta's sons took the king's lands for themselves. Creatures of the king of Mitanni are they, and of the king of Babylon, and of the king of the Hittites. Who formerly could have plundered Tunip without being plundered by Thutmose III? The gods of the king of Egypt, my lord, dwell in Tunip. May my lord ask his old men if this not be so. Now, however, we belong no more to our lord, the king of Egypt. And now, Tunip, thy city, weeps, and her tears are flowing, and there is no help for us. For twenty years we have been sending to our lord, the king of Egypt, but there has not come to us a word, no, not one. Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Akhenaten by composer and librettist <laughs> Philip Glass. Well, it doesn't sound like things are going well for Akhenaten. Yeah, things are kind of falling apart. They're they're pretty bad, though. They're not just like a little bit bad. They're really bad. Yeah, his kingdom is, is falling apart. His socks are all in the wrong drawer. He's going to have to call the Queer Eye guys to help him out. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. You know, I think I think this could be set a lot of different ways. One of the fun things I saw in this documentary that I watched about the making of this is that simultaneously when they were getting ready for the premiere, the the first of the premieres took place in Stuttgart, the commissioning city. But then there was also one that was happening that same year as a premiere in America in Houston. And it was really interesting because different directors were doing a whole different visual aesthetic and interpreting it differently. And Philip Glass was totally on board with that. And your comment about the socks and all makes me think about modern interpretations. I, I know that the, the Metropolitan Opera in New York is doing one, although I think it might be a, an existing production from English National Opera. But but you could you could see this going a lot of a lot of different ways. There's a lot of stylization that you can play around with. I feel like if I were <laughs> staging it, I would actually lean into the whole Akhenaten as a time traveler thing, and I would just mm. have the play begin with everybody dressed like ancient Egyptians, like all the way head to toe, as if they're on hieroglyphic panels. Yes. And then you'd like slowly change Akhenaten's outfit until he was more and more and more modern. And you'd ultimately have him wearing a suit jacket with a collar surrounded mm. by other people who are dressed as ancient Egyptians. Fascinating. Well, back to Akhtaten, his city, 
Is it all going to sort itself out, Grant? Nope. Well, What's you know, going to happen? Do you know what happens? Well, I do. Well, okay, I take that back. I know a little bit of what happens after what happens, but what actually happens is not clear. Exactly. We have no idea what happens. Yeah, nobody knows what happens. It's spawned a, a entire subgenre of both kooky nonfiction and occasionally kooky fiction trying to figure out what happened. We know that it all fell apart. We know that Akhenaten not only died, but he was given the ultimate punishment you could get in ancient society, which was the Damnatio Memoriae, the condemnation of memory. Oh. People went out of their way, wherever his name was, wherever his face was, wherever one of his works was, they destroyed it. They changed the inscriptions that said his name to give credit to his accomplishments to other people. Oh. And they referred to him only as the enemy or the villain. Yeah. Oh, not only scrubbing him from the history books, but if he's there, vilifying him. Yes, and, and, he was, and he was in fact largely forgotten until the age of archaeology. He just faded from the history books because his memory was effaced. This was a time when people very much believed that you were not really dead until your memory was destroyed. And so what it meant to destroy someone's memory was to actually, really genuinely destroy them. Wow. And so that leaves us with all these like murder mystery parts of it. That we we know that the kingdom fell, we know that neither he nor Nefertiti were able to stick around. We know that his son, question mark, ruled for a short time, mostly under the power of one of his advisors. The son died young, the advisor came to power. Wait, wait, that's Tutankhamun, isn't it? The son? That is Tutankhamun, the very famous King Tut. King Tut. Oh. Restrain me from singing King Tut. You didn't restrain me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll try to hold you back from the microphone. But yeah, no, it's like the reason why we know about King Tut is because of this hasty burial in a tiny corner because all of the kingdom was falling apart and they, they went through like six pharaohs in a few years. Although there's some debate about exactly how many of them were actually different people. There's some oh. belief that other people, because Akhenaten changed his name, but so did yes. Tutankhamun, by the way. Huh. What, to, to distance himself from yeah, the villain? Do you want to, yeah, you want to guess what his name originally was? Amenhotep the fifth? Mm, was was uh, Akhenaten big into Amun? Oh, I guess not. He would have named his son Lover of Aten the second. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, so his name, <laughs> we know in history as Tutankhamun, right? The Amun there is Amun-Ra the deity who was previously the most powerful and became the most powerful again later. Amen. But mm -hmm. he was originally named Tutan Cotton, honoring Aten. <sighs> and so in the same way his father changed his name, he changed his name back. Back to the old ways. Yeah. Which in fact, Egypt does continue on it with its long history with Akhenaten just being a, a blip, an aberration. Yes, for about another thousand years. That's a good long while. So yeah, there's this all these questions, and even the basic family relationships are highly disputed. We know we found the mummies of Tutankhamun's mother and father. We're not sure if those are actually Nefertiti and Akhenaten, or if either of them, or either of those people, in fact. Interesting. Because they were in such disgrace, they might not have received such a regal burial, or would, would class have overridden all? It's kind of a great question, what what happened with, with all of these people. 
there seems to have generally been a, a fair bit of respect for the tombs. But yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's worth saying that the the parents of Tutankhamun are thrown in a hastily put together tomb without a whole lot of ceremony or goods, hmm. and the mother has a massive facial wound sustained during her lifetime. Did Nefertiti have such a wound? Not that we know of, but such a wound would have been fatal. Oh. So, I mean, when I say murder mystery, there's legitimate murder mystery stuff going on here. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, it, it was Akhenaten tried to change everything, and everything snapped right back, more or less as soon as he was dead. Well, they had a, a lot of inertia for the way things were. And so... Towards That's what the millennia end of this history opera, will do for you. Indeed. <laughs> we finally get to our bit where we have essentially a tour guide showing these people. And it's, it's a kind of a mix of things going on on stage all at once. You have the tour guide telling us about ancient Egypt from these actual guidebooks. And you also have the shades of these personages around on the stage inhabiting the same space. Yeah, the ghosts live on somehow. Well, as they do in our own minds when we learn about them, reflect on them, discover them. That's why they tried so hard to erase his name. That's right. And yet there's like the crassness and the kitsch of the way that the tour guide talks about everything. And indeed, there's something of the Ozymandias look on my works ye mighty in despair nothing beside remains going on here that there was this great city that a great man and a great woman built together once and now there is nothing left of it and are you reading from the libretto at this point because he does say there is nothing left of this glorious city of temples and palaces the mud brick buildings have long since crumbled and little remains of the immense stone temples but the outlines of their floor plans. Yes, things don't last, do they? And that's why we remember them. But doesn't Akhenaten get the last laugh because here we are spending two hours talking about him? Yes, for a man who seemed outside of history, he can capture the modern fascination in a very particular way. He was in many ways a creature of his circumstance but at the same time seemed so utterly beyond it he has that same sense about him that you get with other historical figures who seem to understand on some level the role that they play in history all right well i think we can go out on the epilogue to the philip glass opera achnaten thanks everyone for joining us thank you
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.